Welcome to Brandon Avat. Um, today we're delighted to have Thaddeus Metz, uh, a close friend of uh, Jason and mine. Uh, Thad is the author of uh, Meaning in Life, and that'll be the topic of our discussion today. Uh, Thad is also voted in the top 50 thinkers in the world by Prospect Magazine. Uh, Thad, would you like to start with um, a little thought experiment? Sure. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, the thought experiment uh, is supposed to be a sketch of a kind of life that I'm going to imagine or suppose uh, that most viewers would want. Um, so first, uh, I'm going to sketch, uh, suppose that we have an individual who has close friendships, um, good collegial relationships with uh, his coworkers, has a loving spouse, uh, and uh, close ties with his children, maybe his grandchildren, does charity work, uh, has advanced social justice in some way, maybe by winning a major court case, uh, goes out of his way to help others by perhaps making podcasts to teach them, uh, or instructs others how to play chess. Um, furthermore, uh, I want you to imagine that this individual is highly educated, has obtained postgraduate degrees, um, reads a lot, and has come to understand much about human nature and uh, the human environment, perhaps has even made discoveries in his field and published a book about them, um, but doesn't know merely about uh, others or, or his world, but also knows about himself. Uh, perhaps he's a reflective individual or he's gone through psychotherapy and he's come to understand himself, has overcome blind spots, uh, understands his own motivations, accepts his own desires instead of pretending they don't exist. And in addition, uh, uh, this individual uh, is good at knowing other particular individuals. He can empathize uh, with others and see the world from other people's point, uh, points of view. Still more, I want you to suppose this individual has a home filled with beautiful artifacts. Uh, he attends concerts, uh, uh, visits museums. Uh, perhaps in retirement, he's been creative by writing poems or a novel uh, or made sculptures. Uh, perhaps he tends a garden. This would be a rich life. Uh, it would be uh, an unusually rich life. Um, few of us would approximate it. Um, but I want to make two points about it. One is that intuitively, uh, by virtue of exemplifying this cluster of, of values um, uh, connected with the good, the true, and the beautiful, or roughly morality, inquiry, and creativity, uh, this person's life is meaningful. It's a significant life. Um, and even though I've uh, laid it on thick, uh, we have a bit of an ideal here, uh, something to aspire to or strive for, um, one not many of us uh, is likely to reach. Uh, we can approximate something of it. Uh, many of us can realize a number of these kinds of values uh, in our lives. And so to that extent, I suggest that many of us do have uh, meaningful lives or uh, uh, lives that are meaningful uh, on balance. So that's the thought experiment, is to suggest that uh, many an everyday life uh, of a human person can exemplify meaning. And what I'd like to do next is then make some sense of this intuition. Uh, so we start with this intuition, this relatively uncontroversial judgment that, ah, here's a meaningful life, uh, and many of us can uh, perhaps not live that kind of life, but can still approximate it or come close. Uh, what theoretical or philosophical background would make sense uh, uh, of these judgments? Um, and from my perspective, uh, one thing that's going on when we talk about what makes a life meaningful, what's central uh, to this kind of inquiry, at least amongst 
uh, Anglo-American philosophers. When we think about meaning or talk about meaning, normally what we have in mind are conditions of a life that merit esteem or pride uh, from a first-person point of view or, or that merit admiration uh, from the perspective of someone else. Or we're talking about purposes that are higher than our own pleasure or our own sort of base desires, talking about something greater than ourselves. Um, or we're talking about ways in which uh, we could have an interesting or uh, compelling life story. Well, I don't think uh, talk of meaning is reducible to any one of these ideas. I think when we think about meaning in life, we have a cluster of, of different topics, overlap, overlapping topics in mind. And I think the example I gave um, of this rich life uh, uh, exemplifies these things, right? There are many conditions where it would make sense for the person to feel pride uh, or other people to admire that individual. Or there are many conditions in which the individual is doing something, uh, achieving goals that are somehow higher than, than his own happiness. Um, I gave you lots of conditions, right? I gave, uh, specified quite a number of variables, uh, ways in which this individual uh, could exemplify meaning in his life. And one thing I've sought to do as a philosopher and that many of my colleagues have in the field is to try to unify them. Right, to try to reduce them to a single property. Right? It'd be intellectually really fascinating if we could come up with, with what we philosophers tend to call a theory of meaning in life that would reduce all those properties to, to just one. Um, that would be intellectually satisfying for, for many of us. Um, and there are a number of prominent candidates uh, in the field that uh, I would want to criticize as, as uh, uh, candidate theories. So one prominent suggestion has been, well, uh, a life is meaningful just in so far as it fulfills God's purpose. So maybe you might think, well, it's God that's uh, wanting to, to live that kind of life that I described at the start. Uh, but uh, I don't think that's true. I mean, I think even if we suppose for the sake of argument that there is no God, we would still find a life that exemplified those conditions meaningful. Um, and the other thing I would want to say is that uh, many viewers are going to be much more confident that that life is meaningful than they are that God exists, right? So you're highly justified in thinking that's a meaningful life. Uh, in terms of philosophy or evidence, you're not so justified uh, in thinking God exists. And when you encounter that kind of discrepancy uh, in the epistemic status for your beliefs, um, it becomes incoherent, I think, to maintain that a life is meaningful just in so far as uh, it fulfills God's purpose. Another plausible or prominent theory uh, of life's meaning uh, is consequentialism. So you might say tending a garden uh, and making discoveries and having uh, close relationships have good consequences uh, for yourself and other people. Um, but uh, uh, in some ways, uh, the same kind of objection applies. Um, I think we're more confident that that life is a meaningful life, then we are that uh, that life is going to have good consequences. Um, indeed, we could imagine hypothetically that somehow that life had very bad consequences for the rest of the world. And I would accept that the, the meaningfulness would go down to some degree, but I would still want to maintain that there was some meaning uh, by virtue of some non-consequential elements, something in itself about that life is important. Um, well, that front, it might be interesting to then sort of pause and think about, is there a difference between a pleasurable life and a meaningful life? And is it possible to lead a meaningful life uh, 
if you personally suffer. So we can imagine the Mother Teresa type figure um, who leads a life of abject misery while looking after people that are, you know, under states of distress and disease. Um, mm. you know, can we say that her life is meaningful if she is uh, a superstitious argument actually helping those people, you know, along a certain journey? Yeah, my view is yes. So I think, uh, I think, uh, uh, the, the hypothetical Mother Teresa, we don't want to talk about the actual one who seemed to have various uh, uh, problems, right? Uh, various criticisms made of her life. But the hypothetical one who goes out of her way to make sacrifices for others uh, uh, in a medical context, I think that is meaningful. Um, and I think it would be somewhat less meaningful if she were just cheery, <laughs> emptying the bedpans uh, and tending to the lepers. Uh, there'd be something wrong <laughs> uh, if she wasn't uh, sympathizing with their plights and actually feeling bad. Um, so I think meaning can come from sacrifice. Um, and I also think meaning and pleasure are really two quite different things. Um, so a good example of this is the... Uh, Woody Allen's example of an orgasmatron from the movie Sleeper. Uh, uh, you enter the orgasmatron, it does what it says it's gonna do. Um, if you spent uh, the rest of your life in the orgasmatron, it'd be a very pleasant life, and I even think it would be a happy life, but it wouldn't be a meaningful life. And so it's a vivid, it's a vivid way of seeing the difference between the two. Um, I naturally want a life with both meaning and happiness, right? That's probably the best life. Um, and you're probably going to have to make some trade-offs from time to time. Um, I wouldn't want to live the, the hypothetical Mother Teresa life uh, for the rest of my life. Um, but my way of understanding that is to say that meaning isn't everything. Uh, happiness counts too. It's just, a, it's just something different. It's a different value. I just want to um, summarize and see if I've understood correctly. So what you're saying is we're investigating a particular value and that is meaning. So we're trying to find an account of meaning, try to work out what it is, what it cooks down to, what it boils down to. And your account sounds like it's, it's, a, factor, it's a combination of three factors. So it's uh, the good, the beautiful, and the true, right? Um, and then you've also looked at these competing accounts. So uh, the, the, um, religious accounts, so that me meaning boils down to God or some sort of following of God's word, and you've said that's not going to work. And then you've also looked at um, this account of consequentialism. So the idea is that meaning is, is uh, wrapped up in actions that produce good consequences. Um, and that's not going to work either because of these count examples. Um, so I'm, j I'm just curious why you've chosen those three, those three factors, the good, the beautiful, and the true. Um, are they all necessary? Um, are they together sufficient um, for meaning? Right. So I focus on those because they are, I think, common ground uh, in analytic philosophical debates over the past hundred years. Right. So if you go back to uh, the turn of the 20th century, right to the 1900s or the, uh, the late 19th century, even um, when you start getting uh, Anglo-American philosophers theorizing about meaning, uh, and you work your way uh, up until the present day, uh, what I think I found is that an overwhelming majority of, of philosophers, whether it's religious folks, consequentialists, or you know, broadly deontologists like me, um, we all accept that the good, the true, and the beautiful uh, are relatively uncontroversial instances of meaning. And so the game has largely been, uh, what might those three conditions have in common? Can we reduce them to something? And the religious theorist says it's God purpose, the consequentialist says it's, it's consequences, and 
uh, in my view, roughly, it's a kind of exercise of your rational nature. So I've got a very sort of broadly Aristotelian or kind of Kantian perspective on, on what unifies those three conditions. So that's the, that's the dialectic. I've got, I've got an alternative uh, for you, Thad. Um, I'm a perfectionist, so I really like perfection as a value. Um, and I wonder whether when you describe this life, um, this person who teaches other ch others chess and this person who reads and self-reflects and go to psychoanalysis and learns various skills, gardens, um, I wonder whether you aren't just describing lots of different types of perfection. So they are... A perfection roughly here would mean sort of a skill or an art, um, something that one becomes good at, um, not necessarily perfectly good at. You don't have to be perfectly good at a perfection to have it, but it seems like that person is living a perfect life in some sense rather than a meaningful life. Would that not describe their life? Um, I don't think that'd be inaccurate. I mean, depends what we mean by meaning. Why, why must it be instead of meaning, right? If, if, uh, if by definition, uh, talk of meaning in life is about those conditions that merit pride or admiration or about uh, getting in touch with something greater than yourself or you know, constructing a, a compelling life story, if that's what we mean by the phrase, um, uh, those properties seem to, uh, seem, seem to capture uh, what's going on in this life. So you could describe it in other terms, uh, in terms of perfection. Um, I, don't, I don't think I necessarily disagree. I just wouldn't want to, to exclude the possibility of meaning, meaning capturing it. Um, I think the other thing to say is I would want to know more about what makes something a perfection. Right? So it's not enough to say that these are skills, uh, or it's not even enough to say they're perfections. Um, because we'd want to know in virtue of what are they perfections. And you know, one way of understanding my project, or at least the project of, of analytic philosophers thinking about meaning is we, we try to spell that out, right? We try to give you an account of what makes something a perfection. Um, and so again, you could in your terms see the religious view and the consequentialist view and the deontological view as, as rival accounts uh, of, of, the, of what I think we're talking about, which is the same stuff, the same cluster of stuff. So you alluded earlier to this idea of a compelling life story and how that might make your life meaningful. And we can think about uh, tyrants uh, and you know, fascist leaders or communist leaders as having incredibly compelling life stories um, mm -hmm. and having this gigantic impact um, on their nation and on the world at large. Um, but that impact is pernicious. Um, they act with, with evil. Um, but you might think that they have a particular end in mind and that they used their rational faculties to get to that end and that they were happy with that end. So, mm. uh, you know, Hitler aimed to exterminate all Jews and to the extent that some survived, he might say there was a failing, but he was engaged <laughs> in this project um, through an exercise of a, a rational process. In other words, the goal he wanted and the means he used to get there. Now we all accept it's an entirely evil process, um, yes. but it is one with a big impact and it is a, compelling life story in the sense that, you know, it is a story people will remember for, for many years to come. Uh, yeah. Is his life meaningful? Right. Um, there's lots to say about the case. Um, uh, here are two things. Um, uh, the first thing is uh, I distinguish 
um, as Robert Nozick does in his work, if you look carefully, uh, between a meaningful life and an, and an impactful life. So he thinks there's a difference, and I think so too, between saying a life is significant uh, on the one hand and a life has uh, been impactful on another. Um, and then we can debate the value of an impactful life, um, but I would want to suggest that on the face of it, it isn't, uh, it isn't necessarily a meaningful life. I think when we talk about meaning, uh, the overwhelming majority of us, not all of us, but most of us, at least in, in analytic philosophy, have in mind something positive, something desirable. Um, and so merely having impact, uh, destroying the earth, much as Jason would like that, a bit of an aside there, um, uh, 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 isn't, isn't a good candidate. Uh, um, so that's, that's one thing to say. The other thing to say is that um, uh, what I try to do in some of my work is say more about the nature of that, that rationality. Right? So if I were to cash out Jason's perfections, I would go running to Aristotle and Kant roughly uh, and say an awful lot of it. Uh, is a function of uh, the exercise of intelligence of some kind. But it has to be exercised in a particular way. Uh, and Hitler didn't do it right. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, some of what I have to say about the right exercise of rationality is that it's got to be positively oriented towards fundamental aspects of human life. So, uh, for example, what makes love uh, a meaningful, according to me, is that it involves intelligence. Uh, animals can't love, at least not in the way that we find particularly meaningful. Um, and the love involves intelligence. It involves an emotional uh, intelligence, quite literally, uh, where what we prize about the other person and what we respond to uh, positively is her character. Right? When we love somebody in a meaningful way, we, we, we appreciate what makes her tick and we support that. Um, it's not just the fact she's got moles or freckles. Uh, it's not just her appearance. Uh, uh, we might like that, it might give us pleasure, but it isn't a meaningful connection. Uh, rather, it's her character, what makes her tick, what's responsible for much else about her life. That's the source of a meaningful connection. Um, and similarly, another example of fundamentality, I think Einstein and Darwin's discoveries, what makes them so uh, terrifically important is that space and time explain much else uh, about the nature of the universe. Uh, and evolution is responsible for an awful lot about the course of, of human, human existence. So what I try to do in the book uh, that you mentioned earlier is show how fundamentality uh, uh, is at the root of an awful lot of our thinking about substantial meaning in life. And so returning to Hitler now, I would say uh, he wasn't positively orienting his intelligence towards humans uh, or what's fundamental to humans. Uh, uh, it was negative, <laughs> killing, uh, destroying. Uh, I hope that's clear enough. Yeah, so, so I, I think what's interesting is this distinction that Mark has asked you to draw uh, between meaning and significance. So the impact a life has or its significance is not sufficient to generate meaning from it. Um, but there's another distinction which I'm curious about, and I think you've partly answered it, um, but it's a, a distinction a lot of people don't make, and that's the difference between a meaningful life and a purposeful life. Mm -hmm. um, so people often use those terms interchangeably, and I wonder whether that's correct. I think part of what we have in mind when we're thinking about meaning is, is purpose. Um, uh, but it's gotta be a particular kind of purpose. It can't be just any purpose. Um, 
uh, or else we wind up with a kind of subjectivist account. I mean, it could be your higher order purpose to become uh, the world's uh, long distance spitting champion, to use an example of Susan Wolf's. Uh, uh, that might be worth doing, uh, but I'm not, you know, I wouldn't want to say that it's, that it's meaningful or important. Um, so there's certain kinds of purposes that uh, we have in mind when talking about meaning. Um, but I don't think that every sort of meaning in life is a matter of uh, involving some kind of purpose uh, or activity. So I think there can be certain kinds of, of what we might call passive conditions. Well, I think if you're loved, uh, your life has probably got some uh, amount of meaning by virtue of that without you really doing anything uh, necessarily. Uh, your life would be all the more meaningful if you loved back um, uh, and fulfilled a purpose. But simply being the object of somebody's care and concern and affection um, uh, probably makes your life somewhat more important. And that doesn't seem to me to involve any purposive activity, essentially. So that's interesting. So you're saying purpose is neither necessary nor sufficient for, for meaning, because you can imagine cases where it's both missing um, and you still have meaning and cases where it's present and you still don't have meaning. So okay. that's very interesting. Um, there was a there was a, a, a term you used there that I think is, re is is really interesting in this discussion. That's subjectivism. So there's this interesting distinction. I, I keep talking about distinctions. You can see philosophers do this a lot. But yeah, uh, this distinction between subjectivism and objectivism about meaning. So is meaning the kind of thing that is determined by you, the person who holds the meaning, or is meaning something objective that can be described about the way you live your life independently of whether you believe it's meaningful or not? Yeah. I mean, it is a classic distinction in the field. Uh, for much of the 20th century, uh, the subjectivists uh, held the upper hand. Um, uh, however, uh, over the past 20, 30 years, uh, the objectivists have, have come to the fore. And these days, a very large majority of, of philosophers believe you can be mistaken about what makes your life meaningful or not. Uh, you might find something meaningful or something might be meaningful to you, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually meaningful or, or makes, you know, makes it worth choosing or that it's actually something that merits pride or admiration on the part of others. Um, and I think the long distance spitting case is probably as good an example uh, as any. Um, so I will say in your book, you have a wonderful page of examples of this. Um, you talk about okay. people who derive meaning from standing in queues for hours on end, for maintaining a precise number of hairs on their head, uh, for eating their own feces, and my personal favorite, <laughs> re-watching episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, and I think those are all knockdown objections to this notion that it could be a purely subjective account. In other words, it may be the case that one, you find that very pleasurable, and two, you feel like it's meaningful but that doesn't make it so. Um, yeah. I want to return to this. this but, but can I say one thing? I mean, one thing I think the subjectivists have right, probably, um, is that our lives would be more meaningful if, uh, if we were subjectively attracted to, to these objectively worthwhile conditions. Um, that sounds right to me. So uh, if we're doing the right sort of thing and we believe it's the right sort of thing and we actually like it, um, uh, uh, all the better, normally. Yeah, so it seems that you have to strive for the right goal um, and there's an alignment between your sort of internal mental states and the right object 
Um, so there is a subjective role to be played in this exercise. It's just not the sole determinant of meaning. Yes. I think that's probably the dominant view these days, although it also has variations. Uh, so on my view, uh, you don't need to have any subjective elements at all. We can go back to the hypothetical Mother Teresa from early on, um, and we can you know, suppose she really hates what she's doing. She doesn't believe it's important, but so long as she's actually saving lives and relieving pain, in my view, there's some meaning there, uh, uh, even if there's room for more. Uh, but the more common view is Susan Wolf's, uh, where uh, she believes that their uh, subjective attraction is a necessary condition uh, for having meaning. I suppose, as you say, there are different ways you could cash it out. The one might be that it's an amplifier, uh, and the other one is that it's necessary. So if you imagine that the Mother Teresa who feels nothing or feels um, total negativity about the exercise, that either diminishes it or means that the activity is entirely meaningless. Um, so I like that idea of being able to have some sort of almost mathematical formula for working out what activity you would engage in. And part of that is, you know, to be meaningful, part of that is what is the activity and part of it is your view on the activity. Um, but the, the issue I'd like to return to is this notion of impact. And so we had a discussion with um, Professor David Benatar has written about a kind of aligned topic, um, which is what is the meaning of life? So, you know, his concern is that it may very well be the case that you can do meaningful things in the terrestrial realm. Um, you can engage in these beautiful, uh, true and good things. But ultimately, when we zoom out, when we look at things from the perspective of the universe, uh, the impact of our lives is so tiny, so minuscule, uh, yeah. that it's irrelevant. And therefore, overall, um, our lives are rather meaningless. So, <laughs> I mean, I, uh, uh, you can take that perspective. Um, but uh, it's hard for me to see why we should. Um, and there are a number of concerns I've got about this kind of this kind of perspective. Um, um, I, I mean, the, the first thing to say and sort of the obvious thing to say is that uh, these are mighty high standards uh, that are being set up for meaning. Um, and uh, very few of us would have similarly high standards when it comes to other values. So you don't need to be uh, Jesus in order to be aptly described as a morally good person or a virtuous person. Uh, you don't need to have be, been plugged into the orgasmatron for an eternity uh, in order to have a life that's properly described as a happy life. Uh, you don't need to be able to break planets by snapping your fingers in order to be aptly described as strong. Um, so when we look at other values, um, or just simply adjectives, um, uh, we've got much more mundane everyday standards uh, that we tend to invoke. Uh, and so it's hard for me to see why we should go reaching for a cosmic uh, uh, perspective when thinking about meaning in particular. I don't think it's qualitatively different from these other, these other kinds of values. The other thing I want to say about this argument uh, from Professor Benatar um, is that I see a kind of incoherence in it. So he's got awfully high standards of roughly perfection, uh, not, in, not in Jason's sense. Uh, but a very idealized kind of standard for meaning, right? You've got to be able to make a major difference to the universe in order to count as having 
a meaningful life, or at least a cosmically meaningful life, which, which Professor Benatar thinks is incredibly important. But he doesn't have similar, similar standards when it comes to uh, uh, epistemology and making these kinds of judgments, right? So Professor Benatar thinks we should believe his view. Uh, he thinks he has good arguments uh, for his view. So notice the, the normative and the evaluative language there. Um, but he's using everyday standards uh, when he's making his, you know, advancing his philosophy. Uh, he's not appealing to perfection when he tells us what would be good to believe or what we should believe. Uh, but by the same token, uh, let's not use perfection or, or such a high standards when we're thinking about what, how we should live or what is a desirable life would be. Um, uh, so I think if we're going to be consistent and uh, use everyday standards when it comes to epistemology and justification of belief, we should use similar standards when thinking about what kind of life is justified or appropriate. I think that's a really good answer. Um, I, I'm curious about a different type of nihilism as well. So um, David Benatar's view, according to him, is not a, a, a totally nihilistic view. So he does think there's some meaning in life. He just thinks it's vastly reduced compared with what we think it is. It's just this terrestrial meaning, which sits in a tiny, tiny little band below cosmic meaning. Um, and cosmic meaning he places as the important type of meaning. But I'm curious about a, a different type of nihilism, which is, what if I were to say to you, okay, Thad, there is the good, uh, the true and the beautiful. These, these things exist, but that's all there is. There's no meaning that is, that, that is built upon them. So that meaning is not reducible to them. Meaning is eliminated. And all we're left with is those three things. What would you think about an eliminativist view of meaning? Mm -hmm. Um, we could get rid of meaning talk, um, but uh, I think that's just another way of saying we'd still have the meaningful conditions. We just wouldn't use the word meaningful to refer to them. So the analogy for me would be um, uh, we could talk about H2O without ever using the word water, uh, but by God, water would still exist. <laughs> uh, there would still be H2O uh, uh, and what today we call water. Uh, so if we've got the good and the true and the beautiful, uh, we, can, we can avoid using meaning talk to refer to them. Uh, but that really is what constitutes meaning, at least for uh, most inquirers. Um, and so just removing the language, I don't find it a powerful, I don't see what the motivation would be and I don't, I don't feel very threatened by it either. Uh, because the actual values would still be still obtained. So it seems like you do have some underlying framework in which you happen to have slotted these, these three valuable things. Um, you spoke earlier about, about love. Um, and I, I wonder, do you see that as a freestanding value or is it one that can be explained, you know, partly in relation to the others so that uh, to be in love is partly to desire someone who is beautiful um, to maybe treat them in a, in a good way, to have you know, um, uh, respect for them, uh, to want good things to happen to them, and then maybe also to understand them, so to find out what is true about them. Um, so it, it would seem that the love could be explained in these three ways, but maybe there's more to love than that, that we can't just boil down love to these three values, that there's something left over after we've done a reduction exercise. I think that's probably true. Uh, there are probably lots of reasons to, to value love. So um, 
I'm suggesting one reason to love is that it's meaningful. It makes your life more important to love and to be loved. Um, uh, it's something that would merit pride. It's something that's worth doing that uh, uh, transcends your own uh, animal nature. Um, but another reason to love is that uh, it's pleasant, at least often enough, not always, but uh, uh, hopefully uh, it's pleasant and brings you happiness. That's a, just a distinct kind of way of, of valuing love. Um, and I'm not trying to provide a, a I'm not trying to suggest the only reason to love is that it's meaningful, um, uh, that it involves uh, uh, the kind of uh, exercise of intelligence that I think makes a life important. It's not the only reason, but it's one reason. What are we to do when we're faced with um, meaningful activities that are at odds with each other? Um, so for example, if you could um, find out what is actually true, um, but it may be a, an ugly truth, um, or it, it may be very unkind uh, to others if you were to reveal that truth, uh, and therefore yes. that's good. Um, do you have some sort of underlying framework which tells you how to pursue meaning when you have trade-offs to make? I don't. Uh, uh... Uh, the only people who do are the consequentialists at this stage, right? So in principle, they assign a, a, a cardinal number to each uh, uh, value state. Um, and they think in principle that you can tot up uh, uh, what the outcomes, uh, numerical outcomes of various choices would be. Um, that's the only view I'm aware of that I can think of offhand that uh, has some kind of structure for some clear structure for, for making trade-offs. Um, I think it's a weak part of the field. I think it's a, an aspect of the field that, that merits development, uh, sort of developing a non-consequentialist way to rank uh, different kinds of meaning would be well worth doing. Uh, nobody's gotten very far yet. I, don't, I haven't myself. I'm curious whether this raises a bigger problem, which is, can you ever know a, how meaningful a life is, and B, whether it is meaningful, given that you can't even rank these different options. Well, I, 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 think, I think actually often we can rank them, but uh, we can't yet rank them with precision, and we often can't yet say what's behind the ranking. <laughs> um, so I'm quite happy to say that the life of uh, uh, Mandela uh, and Einstein, I think their lives were more meaningful than mine. I have no hesitation in saying that. Uh, uh, one freed an entire country uh, uh, from apartheid uh, uh, with help, but uh, played a major role. Um, and the other made a major discovery about uh, the nature of the universe. Uh, those are big. <laughs> uh, we perhaps can't quantify them, uh, but we can compare them to most lives and say, well, that, that stands out. Uh, and there are, there's a reason, good reason, why those two lives uh, are often used as exemplars uh, of meaningfulness. Something so like I do think we can make some confident judgments of, who's, of, of rankings. Um, but again, precision and explanation are, are still missing. You spoke earlier, you've mentioned throughout this discussion, uh, different types of values which might compete with meaning um, in any given circumstance where we might have to choose between these different types of values. So one you mentioned was happiness um, or pleasure. Um, another one was 
the one I mentioned, perfection, which might be more closely aligned with meaning. Um, but there's others as well, like morality. Um, and, and, you know, one can imagine others like a sense of adventure. Um, I, I, wonder, I wonder how you would rank meaning compared with those. Because often what we're trying to get at when we ask for an account of meaning or an account of happiness is we want to know how to live our lives. So we want, we want an answer, right? We want to, okay, the, your life must be lived according to, boiled down to these, these factors, right? You must live a life that's good, true, and beautiful. But that'll only get me meaning. Now I also have to look at how do I live a moral life and, and what happens when I have to sacrifice a bit of morality for a bit of meaning or vice versa? What is, what is the balance there that I need between all these different values? Yeah, I, that's also a tough question. Uh, uh, and I don't think any philosophers have a particularly good answer, but I think there's probably one thing many of us would, would agree with, and that's that for any of these values, you don't want to go beneath a certain floor. Um, so on morality, you, you don't want to be Hitler. Uh, uh, when it comes to happiness, you don't want to be tortured um, uh, for very long. Um, uh, when it comes to meaning, you don't want to be stuck in the orgasmatron or the experience machine for, for very long. Uh, it's, it's not going to help. So uh, uh, many of us would say, supposing you've got enough of each of these kinds of values, uh, then you see, you know, you see what's on, what's, what's on offer, uh, given your particular temperament, your particular society, your particular environment. Uh, supposing you've got enough morality, happiness, and meaning, uh, where now uh, can you really go to town uh, with respect to the other values? I think many of us would accept that kind of, that broad picture. So in the early days of, of the pandemic, uh, you wrote a, a short piece about how we can have um, an antimatter, the sort of thing that erodes meaning in our lives. And uh, mm -hmm. the sort of story that you told was this endless cycle of, of sanitizing, of having to make sure that your, your hands are clean, that your car is clean, that you're wearing your mask properly, that as you get your groceries, and you sort of wind up in this uh, banal cycle where nothing ever really gets accomplished and you do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, now, that strikes me as sort of a, a meaningless thing to do. Um, and I wonder if, in other words, if you engage in enough meaningless stuff that it starts to erode the meaningful things in your life, are there other kinds of antimatter that can take a once meaningful life and destroy it? I think great, causing great harm to others is a pretty uncontroversial example. So I think you're right. Repetitiveness is, is a good one. Um, uh, and even repetitiveness doing good things. So, uh, uh, so you know, in, in the COVID case, you're trying to at least do good things. Um, but the, the movie Groundhog Day, you've got Bill Murray actually doing good things, rescuing people and playing the piano and uh, 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 having fun with them. But still, there's something lacking in meaning when it's the same, literally the same activities uh, done every 24 hours. Um, so repetitiveness drains life of meaning, but I also think causing harm to others is a clear, uh, a clear example. Uh, so the Hitler example uh, is a good one. Uh, in my book, I imagine somebody who blows up the Sphinx for fun. So destroying great works of art, again, just, uh, it's not merely that there's an absence of meaning. Um, it's that it, I think those kinds of actions reduce the meaningfulness of your life. 
so there's an important difference between blowing up the Sphinx just for fun uh, and oversleeping. Uh, if you oversleep, there's not going to be any meaning added to your life, uh, but it doesn't reduce the meaning of your life in the way that these kinds of actions would. So I, I have two questions there. So the one is, doesn't it sound then like there's a missing criterion uh, in your account, which is novelty? Um, does novelty boil down to any of the other three, um, good, the good, the beautiful, and the true? And if it doesn't, then it seems like we need to add it. Um, and the second question I have is, it, are, are activities meaningful or is a life meaningful or both? Um, where does meaning go? Yes. Um, uh, in the book, I do add a kind of advancement criterion uh, uh, to particularly great sources of meaning. So if we're talking about the true or what, you know, I'm abbreviating the true in terms of when it comes to knowledge, uh, um, uh, discovering something uh, uh, is better uh, than engaging in the same kind of intellectual exercise, but coming up with something that somebody's already discovered first. Um, uh, 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 that's better, um, for example. So I, I do think uh, when we're talking about great meaning in a life, we're looking at yeah, doing something new or original in some way, I think you're right about that. Um, there's good debate about what the ultimate bearer of a life, uh, of, of a meaning, of meaning is. Um, uh, in my view, it's both uh, actions considered in themselves and then also the life or stretches of a life as a whole. I just, and I think they're probably distinct uh, uh, to, to a large degree. Um, so if somebody finds a cure for cancer, uh, after working hard on that for, for many years, um, I'm inclined to say that's, that adds to the meaning of, of, of his or her life, uh, knowing nothing else um, about that person's life. Just, that, just knowing that fact uh, enables, I think, most of us to say, aha, uh, th there's some meaning there. And if we agree with that judgment, I think we've got to say that it's just actions uh, uh, that can bear meaning. Um, on the other hand, uh, uh, there can be patterns uh, in the way people live um, over time that do seem to be independent sources of meaning. Um, so many of us want uh, our lives to improve over time. Uh, we want them to, you know, if they're going to start low, okay, uh, but we want them to get better over time and uh, uh, go on an upward slope. Um, and many of us would prefer that than that we start high uh, and then have a downward slope over the course of our lives, uh, where we hold constant in both of those cases, the amount of value, right? The amount of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Uh, if we hold those things constant uh, and we still want the upward slope, then that suggests it's not just the actions uh, uh, that bear the meaning, but also the pattern of the life, the life as a whole seems to be able to, to be appraised as meaningful or meaningless. Um, so I think, yeah, those are two independent, independent ways of, of judging a life uh, with respect to its meaning. So if we think about um, discovering things that are true, there's some objective thing in the world um, that we are discovering. Um, and if we think about doing things that are good, if you have an objective account of morality, you know, we can determine with some ease whether you are actually doing the right or good thing. The beautiful seems a bit more complicated. So there will be debate as to whether particular artists are in fact creating beautiful work. Um, you could have an artist uh, producing work that is grotesque, um, but nonetheless uh, revered. 
And so I wonder how do we determine whether someone who let's say focuses their life on the realm of, uh, of art or um, sees themselves as engaged in a sort of um, beautiful making exercise, how do we determine whether what they're doing is actually meaningful? Um, yeah, by, by beautiful, I was using it um, as a kind of shorthand um, for something more broad. Um, roughly creativity is really, really what I have in mind there, um, or, or other philosophers have had in mind over the years. Um, so when we think of the beautiful, we do first think of uh, uh, aesthetically appealing visual art or, or music. I mean, that's, that's the first thing we run to. Um, uh, and I certainly want to say that, that, that that's important. Um, but I wouldn't want to limit uh, the creative or the aesthetic to, to, that, to, that, to that sort of stuff. Um, so there could be uh, uh, ugly uh, art that is nonetheless creative. Uh, and that is nonetheless revealing. Uh, uh, that nonetheless prompts us to see the world in a different way. And it would, have, it, would, it would count as, in the broad sense, beautiful, right? It would count as creative. It would count as aesthetically valuable uh, and hence meaningful uh, for my project. Um, so I don't want the word beautiful to be misleading. It's, it's not meant to, to be read narrowly. Um, and in fact, by, by the beautiful, I would even include humor. I think uh, having a sense of humor is a kind of creativity um, and would fall under this heading. There's a further question, though, you've posed of, well, how do we know then maybe not what's beautiful, but what's aesthetically valuable? Uh, and, you know, I don't know what else to do other than to uh, uh, use our own senses, uh, to uh, uh, read what art critics have to say, uh, to, uh, to consider what philosophers have to say. I mean, there, there's just sort of the normal way of, of trying to judge, uh, judge a work of art or judge uh, a work of creativity. So Mark has interrogated this notion of beauty. Um, I'm curious about uh, what's true. So I, I wonder, firstly, exactly what you mean by that. Um, so, you know, when you talk about beauty, what you really mean is creativity. Is there, is there another term that you're using for true? And, and also, I wonder if there's not counterexamples. So um, I, I don't know if you know the Tao Te Ching. So in the Tao Te Ching, uh, they talk about, uh, the author talks about um, Lao Tzu, I think is the author. He talks about how it is very important that your populace uh, does not believe what is true. Um, because if they do, they will rebel and there will be discord in the land. Um, and so it's very important to sow enough misinformation and lack of education into people's lives that they can live a peaceful existence. Um, and, and so the, the most meaningful leader, the one that leads the best country will be, or best citizenry will be the one who does not promote the truth entirely. Um. Yeah, by true, I, I again don't literally mean whatever propositions that correspond to facts. Um, uh, it's really a placeholder for inquiry, for intellectual reflection. Um, uh, so that could include uh, merely justified beliefs that uh, are false, for example. And it could include certain kinds of awareness um, uh, that don't involve whatever we might, what we might call analysis or deliberation. Um, perhaps, perhaps empathy or perhaps uh, certain types of cognitive awareness that have been ascribed to mystics. Um, I think these are going to count as inquiry or these are going to count as intelligence very broadly construed and 
and I would want to capture them uh, as, as good candidates uh, uh, for meaning in a life. Um, with respect to uh, uh, the political case of trading off truth for the sake of peace, I guess my response to that would be, well, a good leader might be one uh, who sacrifices the truth for the sake of peace. But wouldn't it be an even more impressive leader who didn't have to make that trade-off, uh, who found a way to finesse things so that he was able to promote both goods of truth and peace? Wouldn't that be all the better? And if we want to, if we want to say yes to that, uh, then that suggests there's something important uh, about truth in itself. Um, there's the further question of how much weight does it have relative to other goods. Uh, but the claim I just want to make is there's some, there's, uh, uh, certain kinds of reflection uh, have some degree of meaning in themselves. That's all, that's the only claim I really am out to defend. Not that it's all important. So David Benatar is famous for another view, which is this notion that it, it's wrong to bring new life into the world um, because life is uh, overall filled with more suffering uh, than it is filled with pleasure and therefore it would be better for you not to have been born. Um, he doesn't only use this pleasure pain analysis. He partly relies on his earlier statements about why life is not nearly as meaningful as we think it is. But if it is the case uh, that the correct perspective for determining meaning is the account that you've given us, that we can really reject this cosmic view that we don't need to do the comparator from the perspective of the universe, we can really do comparators with, you know, um, let's say some great exemplars, but you know, under the right parameters. If it is true that uh, life does involve um, more suffering uh, than pleasure, could it nonetheless be the case that it is not immoral to bring new life into the world on the basis that those beings have the capacity to experience meaning and that that meaning might trump uh, the suffering? Yeah, that's precisely the kind of move I've, I've suggested uh, in response to some of Professor Benatar's works. Um, I think he, you're right, he doesn't want to restrict uh, his analysis to pain and pleasure, um, but the argument works most naturally when we are looking at welfareist values, when we're looking at happiness and unhappiness, um, or welfare and woe, whatever those might be. Um, I do think meaning's a distinct value, uh, as we've, we've been discussing for the past hour. Um, and it can provide reason, good reason, I think, to, to procreate. Uh, the thought that uh, my children are going to have meaningful lives, that's uh, so long as it isn't that uh, terribly uh, self-sacrificial sort uh, that we discussed earlier, um, I would think it's a good reason uh, to have created them. That's right. I wonder as well about, you sort of talked about a certain kind of being that could have a meaningful life. And you gave the example earlier of an animal that can't really love. Um, do you think that in order to lead a meaningful life, there are certain prerequisites you have to have? Are there certain human beings who by their nature can't lead meaningful lives? Um, and are there other kinds of non-human beings that could lead uh, meaningful lives? Um. By my account, uh, since it focuses so much on rationality or the exercise of intelligence, uh, we're really in the first instance going to be talking about persons as, as the kinds of beings that can live meaningfully or not. And I wouldn't want to say just human beings, uh, uh, aliens, intelligent aliens could have meaningful lives. God, if God exists, could have a meaningful life, uh, I would think. Nonetheless, I have, uh, even in the course of our conversation, alluded to uh, 
some, some, some ideas on the contours of that, right? So uh, I've suggested that being an object of love, being loved might be, confer some meaning uh, on an individual's life, let's say. Um, and so then I go thinking about certain kinds of animals. I think about cats and dogs, pets. Um, can they live uh, meaningful lives? Um, and I suspect there can be some limited uh, sort of meaning by virtue of them uh, uh, being part of a loving relationship. I think that's probably true. I'm not sure how much it counts. I don't not, I'm not sure it counts for all that much. Uh, compared to the kind of meaning or kinds of meaning of which a human person uh, could exhibit. Um, uh, but it seems like more than uh, uh, right, the, the kind of life that a cat or a dog could live when it's a pet seems more meaningful to me than, I don't know, a spider living out in the wild. Um, uh, I'm much more readily inclined to, to say that the former's life has some kind of significance that, uh, that the latter's lacks. So we might think about when we talk about a long life, that that's a claim only makes sense relationally. So you might say the average spider, you know, lives for 27 days and this mm -hmm. one's lived for 60 days. That's a long life for the spider. And we might mm -hmm. think similarly in regards to meaning that, you know, this uh, cat has a meaningful life in relation to other cats and this human has a very meaningful life in relation to other humans, but that it's incoherent to cross the categories um, and to sort of make claims about uh, supernatural beings and say, well, in comparison to this, human beings lead a very meaningless life. We'd say, but that's not the right comparator. Um, I wonder about something else, which is just thinking about relationships in another way. So a lot of the other work that you've done is on um, African ethics and this idea that there is a kind of relationship involved in finding out what is the right thing to do do we think that something else like this happens in the realm of meaning? Um, can, is my capacity for meaning restricted if I live on a desert island on my own? In order to lead a truly meaningful life, do I require other people to have relationships with? Right. It's one place where I disagree with much of the African tradition, actually. Um, so awful lot of the African tradition focuses on, on relationality or community. And certainly when it comes to uh, morality, the thought that is in order to be a virtuous person, I have to interact positively with other, uh, with other persons in some way. Um, I'm inclined to think that that might be right when it comes to morality, but I do think it's wrong when it comes to meaning. Um, and in fact, I've, I've used the, the, the thought experiment of, of, the, of the hypothetical Robinson Crusoe, uh, who's been shipwrecked and is now uh, isolated on a deserted island, um, could that individual live uh, a meaningful life? Um, and I think yes, right? So, and I think of two different Robinson Crusoes. I think of the first one who's, uh, uh, whatever, he, he engages in wishful thinking. He thinks he's going to be rescued soon, but there's no evidence for that. In fact, lots of evidence against. Uh, he gets addicted to a local plant. Uh, uh, He's terrified of the warthogs on the island. Um, he doesn't go out of his way to decorate his shelter, but he just stays, you know, he makes do with a cave. And I think, well, that, that Robinson Crusoe is not doing so well when it comes to meaning. And then I think of a different one. I think of one who's accepted the fact that he's not going to be rescued and has kicked it as his addiction to the plant, uh, has battled the warthogs courageously, um, has, uh, uh, 
worked with trees and plants to design a, a beautiful shelter for himself. And I think the second Crusoe is clearly better. And a good description is that it's a more meaningful life that, uh, than the first one. So I think that's, I don't think other persons are necessary. It might be that we still want to say at the end of the day that this is a meaningful life, but not a particularly meaningful life. Uh, that it would be much more meaningful if there were other persons. I'm open to that. But I wouldn't want to say that the existence of other persons is necessary for a significant existence. That sounds wrong to me. I think that's a particularly useful takeaway, uh, given that a lot of countries are going through a second wave of COVID and people are being forced to isolate again. Um, I think the, the consolation that one can, in principle at least, uh, live a meaningful life alone uh, is, very, is very consoling. It's a nice point. Well, Thad, I want to say thank you very much for a, a very meaningful conversation. I mean, I think we've managed to grapple with hard ideas together in a spirit of inquiry. Um, and you know, that's what makes our lives uh, so much richer. And uh, we look forward to having you uh, back on the show sometime soon. Uh, thanks a lot. I'm glad I'm not a Robinson Crusoe and I was able to engage with you too. Uh, it was <laughs> perfect. Thanks a lot. <laughs>